I want you to imagine for a moment that you've just been hired by one of the largest auto manufacturers on the globe, Toyota Motors. Founded in 1937 by Kichiro Toyota, this multinational company is credited with the production of over 10 million vehicles annually. Wow. Sales stand somewhere in the stratosphere of $21 billion a year, and you are the newbie in this behemoth machine. So you begin to prepare. Think about this with me. For your first day of work, you, you wonder what menial tasks will make their way onto my plate today. You're, you're asking yourself, really, honestly, what difference could I make inside of this gigantic team to which I've been appointed? Yet, the moment you walk in the front door of the corporation's headquarters, everything changes. Surprisingly, you're greeted by none other than Akio Toyota, today's president and grandson to Kichiro, again, the company's founder. Personally, he welcomes you, explaining that you are the most important employee that the company has ever hired. Thoughts swim through your mind. There, there has to be some mistake. And not just a, not just a mistake, but a, a mistake on an epic scale. Maybe the president has you confused with someone else. After all, you're, you're a no one, an unknown. You're just a, a worker in the plant, a cog in a giant gear that goes round and round and makes cars one part at a time. Yet, Akio assures you that there's no mistake. Today, he explains, you will wear a special name tag as he pins it on you. Without question, the tag, it, it does have your name on it. But what, what's this title? It reads, Owner of Toyota Corporation. Uh, owner? You think to yourself, you know what? I, I can hardly afford to own one of the company's stripped-down economy vehicles, much less the entire corporation. This is a big mistake, yet Akio presses on. Today, he explains, you have full access to every part of this company. No area, no worker, no process, no question, no fact, no figure is off-limits to you. You are the owner. Now, he instructs handing you a clipboard and a pen. By the end of the day, it should be your goal as our new owner to list as many ways as possible that we can make our company better. I will leave you to your work, he says, as he shakes your hand and thanks you in advance for making Toyota the best auto manufacturer in the world. So let me ask you this, owner, how are you feeling about your new position? Of course, as you're listening to this, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, this is, this is uh, pure fiction. And, and of course, the scenario is, but, but I want you to know that it actually is fiction founded on fact. Uh, I don't know if you've read this book, but in the book, The Machine That Changed the World, authors James Womack, Daniel Jones, and Daniel Roos point actually to a period in history where, and I think many of you remember this, the Toyota brand conjured up images of cheap, poorly made cars, at least for those of us living in the West. Then things changed. Along came an American production theorist by the name of Edward Deming. Do you know the name? He was a, he was a relative unknown in America at the time. And yet he was invited to Japan in 1950 by the Japanese Union of Science and Engineering to actually speak into processes that might lead Japan's economy forward and out of the devastation of World War II. So Deming immediately began to train Japanese industry leaders in the scientific art of continuous 
improvement. Uh, at the core of Demon's teaching was a simple principle. Quote, while it's the end goal, there's never a point at which any process of production reaches the state of absolute zero defect, end quote. What Deming was, was teaching, uh, I'll put it in simple terms, was this, this simple principle that no matter how great your production is, whatever it is, if you're, if you're producing a product, if you're producing a service, whatever it might be, there's always room for improvement. And it really is this principle that's led the Toyota company and arguably one of the great automotive companies uh, on our globe today to place all of its workers into the position of owner. Why? Because what you own, you improve. Which is, of course, uh, what has me thinking about our scripture in Daniel today. In this episode of uh, God Size Living, which, by the way, this is our first episode back after Easter. I want to welcome you back. Uh, today, I really want to rejoin Daniel in a dream that God has given him to bring both comfort and hope to a tumultuous time. So remember with me that 14 years prior to the fall of Babylon to the Persian Empire, this is 539 BC, God wanted Daniel to know that a hard time was coming. Uh, in fact, this is the plot of dreams that he gave to both Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, uh, one utilizing the imagery of, of a statue uh, the other creatures. What he wanted to show Daniel was this sweep of history during which Babylon would fall to Persia, Persia to Greece, Greece to Rome. And, and guess what? This first piece of Daniel's dream has just occurred. Think about this with me. On the day that Persia felled Babylon to its knees, the world was stunned. Uh, Babylon was an empire that dominated the world scene for decades. It was an empire with impenetrable walls, uh, an undefeatable military. But the day it fell, the world said, how? And in the wake of its defeat, there was utter chaos. I want to make an observation. I think sometimes when we read scriptures uh, like Daniel, we have a tendency to sanitize the Bible. And I think it's easy to do here. Uh, we watch Babylon fall to Persia, and a big part of us cheers, actually cheers the invaders on. After all, Babylon was evil. This is the empire responsible for raising God's temple to the ground. And so we cry out, it's about time that they get theirs. But, but we forget. We forget that Jeremiah, the prophet to Judah, called upon Daniel and his fellow Judeans to actually care for, witness to, and invest their lives into the people who had sought to actually bring them harm. And they did it. Uh, we read Daniel and we picture the Judeans celebrating the overthrow of Babylon. But that's, that's not the reality. The reality is that those who were overthrown were their neighbors, people they served, people they prayed over, people they shared the gospel with. And so there's this real sense in which they, the Judeans, are as shook as the Babylonian counterparts on the day that Babylon falls, which is, in my mind, what makes verses 9 to 14 of Daniel 7 so critical, not, not uh, to just the, the whole of this story before us, but to the entire story of Daniel. And here's why. In one word, ownership. So answer to the question, who owns what's happening in this moment of history and what are they doing? So I don't know if you're familiar with the name Jocko Willink. But in 2015, he wrote a book that became a bestseller. One of my personal favorites, a book titled Extreme 
ownership. Uh, Willink, if you don't know his story, is a retired Navy SEAL who served in Iraq where he earned both the Silver and Bronze Star while commanding SEAL Team Number 3. Um, I love this this name. They called themselves the Task Unit Bruiser. If I, if I were ever a Navy SEAL, I love that. I'm on Task Unit Bruiser. Um, so in his book, Jocko describes extreme ownership as uh, the practice of owning every part of one's mission in an extreme way. That is down to the last detail. Now, here's what I love about the section of Daniel 7 before us today. I believe it points us to the one who holds extreme ownership over his mission, namely Jesus Christ. I want to make a couple of observations about Daniel chapter 7 that are really kind of easy to miss. So observation number one, I want to just observe the number seven. We're in chapter seven of Daniel. So question, is that coincidental or intentional? What's significant about the number seven in scriptures? Always keep this in mind when you're reading the Bible. The use of the number seven is always intentional. Here's why. It points us to the person and work of Jesus. When you see the number seven in the Bible or multiples of it, always think Jesus. Seven is his number in both the Old and New Testament. So, so why? Why seven? Here's the way I like to think about it. When you look at the number seven, notice that as a number, it can be divided into two parts, three plus four. Now, numerologically, the number four represents the earth. The ancients would think of the earth as having four corners. Four, four is the world. What about three? So I think as Christians, we know this, that the number three represents God, who is a trinity. He's one God, but he's three persons. So when you put the two numbers together, when God, who is a trinity, three, enters the world in flesh, seven, he enters how? As a baby named Jesus. There, there's number seven. Seven represents three, God, who is entering the world, four, in the person and work of Jesus, who, of course, is God incarnate. Uh, when you put this together in the book of Daniel, isn't it significant that it is in the seventh chapter of this book that the person and work of Jesus appear most prominently? It's here in Daniel's dream that we see Jesus, who is at work on behalf of those he owns, those he made for himself. It's as though through this dream, God's saying to Daniel, and then through Daniel to the Babylonians, whose world has been turned upside down, Jesus is here. He's at work. Now, now I believe that we see this even more plainly in the second observation uh, that I want to make. Namely, let's observe the thrones. I'm just going to read uh, a small section, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7. We pray, Lord, that you give us your insight. But I want you to just listen to uh, what's happening here. Pay attention to this word thrones. We read, quote, verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire a river of fire flowing out and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were open. So the setting here is cosmic. We're in heaven and we're looking down at earth as these thrones are set up. So, so I'm going to ask you the question, 
Did you notice that the word thrones was in the plural in verse 9? So let me ask you, how many thrones are being set up? And what do the thrones mean? So first, of course, is the symbol itself. When you hear the word throne, it represents what? It represents rule, rulership. In other words, uh, God is saying through Daniel, when things look like a mess here on earth, that is from the perspective of the world. Never forget, I'm still on my throne. Talk about extreme ownership. Remember that everything that happens <clears throat> on this planet earth, and I really mean everything, <clears throat> can only happen under God's authority, period. He owns it. So Daniel, yes, Jesus is present, and he's at work even through the mess that's taking place in Babylon. So back to the number. According to what we just read, how many thrones are set up in the heavens? It's kind of, it's kind of a trick question. <laughs> the text, when you read it carefully, does not tell us. It doesn't count the number. However, while the number is not indicated, we'd, we'd have to say, based upon the whole of Scripture, that the number is, is multiple. I want you to remember that Matthew 19 teaches us that in the heavens, the apostles are seated on thrones, where they're called to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. The saints also are described <clears throat> as having thrones, Revelation 4, 11, and 20. <clears throat> so in Daniel's dream, there are multiple thrones, but there are two that stand out, that are distinct. One belongs to the Ancient of Days, namely God, who is the Father, and one belongs, of course, to Jesus. Now, listen to what happens between these two thrones. I'm going to turn now to verse 13 and just read it. It reads as follows. It says, I looked in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So what does this mean? What's symbolically being pointed out here? I think this is important. Think, think through this with me. Here's what is not indicated. As the Ancient of Days is presented uh, with Jesus, there is not an exchange of power. That's not what this text is indicating. Now, I think that we know this, that at any time God acts as a trinity, all three persons act. Why? Because though three distinct persons, God is always one. So what, what's happening as the Ancient of Days, in essence, crowns Jesus? What does the symbolism within Daniel's dream indicate? See, I, I believe that it indicates the way in which God rules from his throne. Now, I'm going to say it pretty simply. I believe that the, the symbolism is meant to convey here the fact that as God rules, he does so through the person of Jesus Christ. Grace is what's being indicated here. So put this together. As God rules, the law, or perhaps it would be better to say the demands of the law, they're, they're always present. But it's God's desire that all would come to know him as the God whose love would lead him to a cross where he might complete the law on our behalf. In ownership terms, there's, there's two implications. One, that the ultimate owner of mission is God, who through the gospel is seeking out continuously 24-7 those who are apart from relationship with him. But also, number two, that 
as we join God in his mission, we too become its owners. We're agents of the one whose love is nothing short of extreme. You know where we, we see this maybe most clearly in this dream? I, I think we see it in the title that's given to Jesus. This is, my, this is my third observation. I want you to notice that in this dream, Jesus is given a specific title. It's a title, Son of Man. You know what I love about this title? It's absolutely extreme ownership. Can you hear what this title infers? But by the way, this title, when you look at the New Testament, is Jesus' favorite self-title. It's actually what he called himself when people would ask him, hey, who, who are you? I'm the son of man. So, so what does it infer? I think you know this. But by using the term man, son of man, what Jesus is saying is, I'm a one of you. And you know what? He had to be. He had to be a man, a true man, in order for him to complete his mission. You know why? Because a real-life man named Adam sinned. Adam's sin was inherited by every other human being that has ever been born. We're not born innocent. We're, we're not, pardon me, Mr. Dewey, tabula rasas that come into this world theologically neutral. No. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 tell us what? That we actually come into this world as, as enemies towards God. Remember what Paul is saying to us? We're born enemies of God, condemned of the law. What that means is that a man, flesh and blood man, had to come into this world and do two things to set us free. The extreme mission of Jesus Christ was, number one, to enter this world as a man because he, he was able to, at the same time, be fully God, to live out the law perfectly on our behalf, and then, number two, as a man, to take the full penalty of law upon himself, literally paying for our sin. This is, this is what the cross is all about, extreme ownership like nothing any other man in history has experienced. Which leaves me with three questions that I want to set in front of you today as we think about this part of Daniel's dream. I want to close this way. I don't want to be trite, but I want to ask you what it might mean for us as followers of Jesus Christ to approach the mission of God under the principle of extreme ownership. Now, I'm not a Navy SEAL, nor would I qualify to be one, especially at this point in my life. However, I really do want to live like one, and I, and I hope you do too. Listen, listen. When I, when I see a seal in the general public, I salute. I do. I salute because I know that seals are sold out to their mission. I salute, and then I wonder, what, what would happen? I'm, I'm just speaking missionally now. If the Church of Jesus Christ were to function as seals today. So here, here's my three questions. Number one, do you have the conviction of a Navy SEAL when it comes to the mission of God. I think, I think what I'm asking is when you wake up in the morning, is there a conviction living inside of you that there are people whose eternities are at stake and God's calling you to the, be the bearer of his gospel to them? I, I ask because if the church believes that mission is the pastor's job or a missionary's job, I think we're in trouble. So if I gave you a scale today, 1 to 10, 10 being I have a weight of conviction inside of me relative to the mission of God, and 1 being, well, you know, I don't know, I have cognitive comprehension of a mission, but it's really, it's not mine, I don't own it. 1 to 10, where would you place yourself? That's question 1. Question 2, do you have the courage of a Navy SEAL? This is one thing that stands out to me as we study the character of Daniel. His courage jumps off the pages of this story. Whether he's interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, uh, 
and the outcome is not good for Nebuchadnezzar, or he's jumping, he jumps into the fiery furnace, he's not thrown into it, he jumps into it. Daniel has that extreme sense of courage that says, I don't care what happens to me personally. You know why? I know where I'm going, but I will do whatever it takes to reach those who right now do not know where they'll spend eternity. Is that courage living inside of you? Or, or is your need to fit into this world too great? Last question. Do you have the heart of a Navy SEAL? When a Navy SEAL pursues their mission, they pour their entire heart into everything they do. They hold back nothing. You, listen, you will never hear a Navy SEAL say to their commander, well, sir, you know what? That's just not convenient for me. Or, sir, I don't have time for that. Or, here, here's one that I hear in the general public too often. You know, sir, that just is not my passion. No, they pour every last ounce of their heart into accomplishing the mission that they have been given. In every sense of the word, it is extreme ownership, as was his. Well, that's it for today. I'm glad, glad to have you back after Easter. I'm going to pray for a great week on your behalf. I really do pray for you and your family. I thank you for praying uh, for me and for mine. Please join me again next week for our next episode. And until then, have a God-sized week.